Hello and welcome to Elevating Founders, a podcast for early stage founders to hear the stories behind the change makers and disruptors in the tech sector who are responsible for tackling the world's biggest challenges. Brought to you by London Tech Week and Founders Forum. Hi everyone, hope you're all well. Episode 10 has arrived and today we have a great conversation between Russ Shaw, London Tech Week founder, friend and ambassador, and Stephen Nundy, partner and CTO at Lakestar. If you're interested in what qualities VCs look for in a founder, what tech verticals they have their eye on right now, and insight into the investment world, this episode will be right up your street. Stephen reveals why digitalization and deep tech are really hot right now and his predictions for the future. He explores the tech founder ecosystem in London compared to other countries, and he shares his view on why internal motivation and dedication to the mission is a key early signal for a successful founder. Russ and Stephen pack loads of interesting takeaways into this episode. I'd have a pen close by to write them down if I were you. I'm now going to hand over to Russ to lead the conversation. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Elevating Founders, the podcast for early stage founders to hear the stories behind the change makers in tech responsible for tackling the world's biggest challenges. Now, this series is brought to you by London Tech Week. London Tech Week is a festival in September, gathering the world's most inspirational founders, global leaders, senior investors, and rising stars to collaborate and discuss the vital role of technology in society. My name is Russ Shaw, and I'm the founder of Tech London Advocates, We're an independent voice for the technology community's private sector, and we're also a founding partner of London Tech Week. I'm also the founder of Global Tech Advocates, which now covers more than 20 tech hubs and regions globally, and with more than 20,000 tech leaders volunteering to support their local tech communities and, and ecosystems. And my guest today is Stephen Nundy, partner and chief technology officer at Lakestar, a leading VC that backs digital and technology entrepreneurs. Ms. Stephen has spent more than 20 years driving innovation and building high-performance teams, all with dynamic and highly competitive businesses. Lakestar is also a partner of Tech London Advocates, and Stephen also happens to be the co-lead of the TLA's dedicated venture capital working group. Now, in this week's episode, Stephen and I will discuss the key tech trends and tech verticals that investors are watching right now, as well as how to add value as a VC. So, Stephen, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Hey, Ross, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Now, to get us started, kind of as an introductory question, would you tell our listeners what it's been like working um, in a VC during this past 12 to 15 months of the pandemic? And are things changing again as the economy slowly opens back up? Well, it's been it's been incredibly dynamic. You know, I think for every month since we went into lockdown last March, I think you could probably write his own chapter as to how the ecosystem has evolved and how founders have have coped and and how venture capitalists and investors have responded to to what's been going on. So it's been very fast moving. I think, you know, when I look back, you know, there's been some obvious things that we've all been working on as an industry, be it um, helping funding, helping thinking about saving um, on the expense line. But there's also been some perhaps less obvious adaptations that founders um, ended up making and some conversation we ended up having with founders, you know, during this time, be it around 
people, be it around laying people off or taking perhaps government money if it was available or thinking about kind of reducing scope when it comes to business expansion or ambition. And so, you know, those aren't kind of uh, what I'd call kind of standard things that are across all of the portfolio, all of the companies. Um, but there were certainly some some kind of non-obvious conversations we'd end up having. I think overall, though, as a, as a venture capital fund, competition was was fiercer than ever. I think right at the beginning, and I remember we had a conversation, Russ, you know, there was a lot of concern about lack of capital or capital being very much restricted. And, um, you know, whilst that, of course, did happen in the early days, especially, I think, at the the very early stage, the very kind of the seed stage in, in, in the startup ecosystem, you know, we we didn't see that um, at the Series A and above in, in any meaningful way. And, and arguably, um, capital continues to flood into the, the startup market. And I think with the last year that's gone by, the the appetite of US investors to um, come to Europe and come to the UK and, and make investments has been has been greater than ever. And so I'd say the, the competition has been has been fierce. Um, and so yeah, that's been another aspect, I think, of the last year, which has been which has been interesting and probably again not obvious when we, we started um, no. the pandemic off in, in the market. That's right. And I guess maybe just to probe a little bit more on that, because it might almost seem counterintuitive to some of the listeners that it has been incredibly competitive. Can you kind of get under that a little bit more in terms of what's been driving that? Why has it been so competitive during the pandemic? Is it people wanting to get ahead of the the post-pandemic emergence and rebound, or are there other factors driving it? I think, you know, you can go industry by industry or sector by sector. And at a macro level, we have seen a, a, an enormous appetite for adoption of technology, for the digitization of what people are doing day to day. And that was something that many of us were um, anticipating happening over the next kind of three to five years. And suddenly that was happening over in the course of three to five months. And um, investors saw that adoption curve very early on. The, the KPIs that we see in the private market, you know, when we talk to entrepreneurs and they share with us how their, their metrics are looking at are incredibly transparent in many respects much more transparent than perhaps the data you get in the public markets, which might be a little bit counterintuitive. But, you know, we do see a lot of data and and our founders are are very open with us. And so where you see some of these early ideas starting to work and and bear fruit, then, of course, you know, expansion will will come quite quickly thereafter. And with expansion, you need capital to expand. And so then the the pool of capital that you're you're trying to um, you're trying to pull from can become from far and wide. And if at the same time there is no barriers there's no travel and so everyone's on the end of a zoom call whether you're on a zoom call from the west coast or the east coast of the us or from asia or from just two miles down the road here in south london or in 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 west london it really doesn't matter at that point you are it becomes much more competitive as an investor to better get into those deals when everyone is seeing you know similar kpis and similar early signals that some of these businesses are working. Now, many of our listeners to this podcast are early stage founders. So it would be great to get your perspective, Steve, and on how Lakestar runs its decision process for seed and series A rounds. And do you have any specifics that might vary in Europe versus the US as you are, are mainly a European focused VC? I think first of all, yes, you know, that. We are a, a European-based VC, but we're actually multi-stage. So we are engaged in the full investment life cycle of entrepreneurs. So we have a SPAC at one end of the market for, for, for obviously helping founders go to IPO. We have a growth fund, and then we have the early fund, which you just referred to. And within the early fund, we have carved out 
a, a, what I'd like to call a side pocket of investment that we dedicate for seed, where seed is anything from around about half a million up to perhaps two million um, pounds or euros. When it comes to you know how we look at seed and, and series A companies, we look at them slightly differently, of course. We spend much more time diligencing our series A investments because they're the ones that are really, uh, are the ones that we're wanting to start seeing breakout measures and where we feel we can add hopefully a lot of value and, and help them get to that next stage of, of growth. And so there's been more, there's more data, there's more proof points from the products. And so that is where we spend, um, spend a majority of our time, you know, performing our diligence. But in terms of, you know, Europe versus the US, you know, we treat them both the same. We have the same internal process for how we decide how we invest. We don't have a separate IC for one region versus the other. And so it's important for us that we, we do have a, a bar that is consistent across um, US versus Europe. But we are predominantly a European investor. And so uh, over 70% um, of all the capital we deploy is here in, in Europe. But it is important that we do have that in our mind, that 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 allocation to the US or to non-European um, venture, because you know that can help not just our returns as a fund, but also help our European founders, you know, the founders that sit here in the UK or in other countries around, around Europe because there's a lot to be learned from the maturity of the ecosystem in the US. Um, and you know there are learnings that we can bring over. Um, we like to call it this Atlantic corridor where we think there's a good exchange of ideas and opinions and, and talent. And um, you know we wanna make sure the European entrepreneurs get access to that. And so that's why we, we continue to spend some of our time investing in the US as well as you know across here in Europe. Maybe moving on a little bit more specifically, looking at London. You and I are both sitting in London uh, as we speak. How do you see the tech founder ecosystem in London compared with other pro prominent hubs, whether they be in, in the US, across Europe, or even in, in parts of Asia? How would you describe it? I would say um, that London is an incredibly strong place to start a business, right? It's um, The ecosystem is more mature than um, other locations in Europe is not as mature perhaps as the West Coast um, in the US. But I think we have a, an incredibly diverse set of founders here, diverse set of ideas. Of course, London gets tagged um, very much as a fintech hub, but there's a lot more to London than just fintech. And I think that diversity of not just people, but of diversity of thought and, and sectors, you know, really adds to how London continues to be a, a leading ecosystem um, within the global construct, not just within the uh, the European construct. But of course, that comes on the backdrop of the last year where we've all questioned the location of where we 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 live or where we operate our businesses from or, or our, our work from. But I think, um, you know, we, it remains to be seen how the dust settles because, I rem again, looking back a year or so ago, we were talking about London with respect to Brexit. And how does London sit versus the other big capitals in, in Europe and the other big ecosystems in Europe? And I, I mentioned at the time, I think there was just a, a, a train of thought and a, a movement where people wanted to be able to work where they wanted to work. They wanted to work near the universities they went to or where their families live or where their, where their co-founders happen to be, um, be coming from. And I think now, you know, the question is different. It's now about, you know, where do you want to physically work from? But, but it's not just about what you do nine to five anymore i think you need to pick a location that is beyond that you know who are you going to meet for lunch and where who are you going to share a coffee or a, a walk with who are you going to want to network with where are you going to be best place so that when someone is passing through town you have the opportunity to to create some serendipity 
or create a, a connection, a human connection, where you can benefit from that person's foresight or experience or or contacts. And and you know that is going to be always very difficult to do in a in a virtual world. And so I think that London will continue, given its diversity and it and it's being at the heart of a lot of transportation, um, that it's going to be at the forefront of, of being an influencer, shall we say, when it comes to how founders think about where they want to start so that they can they can find the best ideas and people to work with. That's great. And speaking of founders, um, what, what qualities do you tend to look for in a founder? What really helps you to seal the deal when you're evaluating the founder of a business who's who's pitching to you? Well, it's, an, it's an interesting one. You know, we've we've had a lot of deep internal conversations uh, trying to answer this this very question. And you know, we've we've looked at the founders in our portfolio. And, you know, is there a common theme? You know, is there a common theme when you look at the ones whose companies have been more successful, perhaps, or perceived to be more successful than others? And the challenge is, Russ, that that you can't measure this over a one-year cycle or a three-year cycle, right? It's a company that looks great today that perhaps you invested in three years ago. And if you look at the traits of that founder and you try and say, well, they're the winning traits, that's the winning trait is is the one at the end of the road when the when the founder gets the exit or the investor gets the exit or the employees end up having to you know end up having their their exit and so you have to look at this over 10 year cycles and so it actually quite frankly comes back to that question about the next 10 years and so often i ask founders you know what what is the why here like why are you dedicated to this mission like you are going to spend the next 10 years building this thing, whatever this thing is, like, how do I get the sense that in four years time, six years time, eight years time, you're going to be sitting in front of me or sitting in front of whoever's the key investor at the time with the same level of energy and enthusiasm that you have today? Like, what is it that's really driving you? Of course, we can look at all the other factors, people's backgrounds, their education, their experiences, their technical moat, but ultimately, it's a long, hard road being a founder. And, you know, that internal motivation is is a key early signal for us to really see whether this is someone that we want to partner with because we're in it for the long road. We want the, the founders to be in it for the long road too. Okay. And before we move on to our, our, our next section, maybe one last question for you around the, the tech trends and tech verticals that excite you. You know, you talked about your five to 10 year time horizon as you meet and evaluate founders. What is exciting you at the moment? Maybe if you can just quickly name two or three specific areas and, and why they're exciting you. So one of the areas that I spend a lot of time focusing on is digitalization um, and deeper technologies and how those two things marry. And you know, the reason I get excited about this is up till now, we've all been consumers of technology. For the last 10, 20 years of our life, we've been sitting here buying software off the shelf or downloading software or accessing software over SaaS, and it's been helping us do stuff. Going forward, though, I believe that we're all going to have to become producers of technology, not just consumers of technology. And so that is a that is a, a paradox or a, par- a paradigm shift in how software needs to get built. What are the tools that you and I need to be able to do our job? Because, you know, up until now, we've been reliant on software houses or development teams or engineering hubs that may be attached to a corporate or that you may be outsourcing some work to and you wait for you know one two three month release cycles you send them some requirements you get back some new functionality that makes your day better but fundamentally the world is changing so fast 
and digitalization needs to happen at a pace that we aren't going to be able to produce enough engineers or enough computer scientists to keep up with the change that we need. And so therefore, all of us are going to have to start developing, quote unquote, developing or producing our own software in the future. And to me, that's super exciting. And so you've heard of low code, no code. And that to me is kind of the first phase of this. But even low code, no code is still something that you need to have some sort of engineering prowess or some logical thought pattern around to be able to get your hands hands dirty with. But a lot of the problems we're dealing with these days or that we're going to be faced with in the future are kind of what I like to call wicked problems. Problems that have no kind of built-in solution, no rules-based solution. It's moving and a morphing and it's an organic problem. And, you know, the problem this week may be different from last week, or there might be a new regulation or a new process you're going to implement because your business is changing. And if every time that happens, you're going to be waiting those for those two or three month cycles to get the engineering team fired up to look at your requirements and get it prioritized and get things done, you know, you're going to miss the boat. And so to solve wicked problems, we need technologies that we produce ourselves rather than us just being consumers. And so anything around that space gets me very excited. Um, we're we're going to now move to what we call the quick fire session um, that we do across the Elevating Founders podcast. So um, this is where you're going to have no more than a minute to answer each of these four quick fire questions. So I hope, you, hope you're ready for that. Here we go. Question number one, what subsector of technology do you think has grown the most during the pandemic? Uh, healthcare. Um, for me, without a doubt, I think that has, depending how you measure the word growth, right? I think in terms of maturity, how people are thinking about healthcare, how people are wanting to plan for healthcare in the future, digital health. For me, that has been a, a real pivotal point during the pandemic, how people want to really see that this has to go full board digital going forward. And I think we're ready for that, that movement. Second question, if you could pick any entrepreneur to sit on your company's advisory board, who would you choose? This is this is a struggle, right? Because you've got <laughs> you've got the usual suspects. You've got your Musks, you've got your Gates, you've got your Pages, your, your Bransons, your Jack Mars, right? Your Zuckerbergs. In all honesty, you might find this a little bit corny, but I'd love to have my dad, um, if he was around, come and join one of my oh. advisory boards. I think at, as an early at an early age, I I always admired my, my my father's ability to turn his hand at anything that was going on at the time. And, you know, he wasn't a successful man when it came to, you know, building a business or having a successful outcome. But my goodness, he had the tenacity and the ability to morph and, and adapt to any situation. So I think he'd be great to have on one of our advisory boards to bring some home truths to some of the conversations we have. That's really nice. <laughs> I'm sure he'd, if you were around, he'd appreciate that. Third question: What's a startup you're loving at the moment, and why? Obviously, it's, it's a bit of a loaded question because I'm, you know, the, <laughs> yeah, uh, Turkey, turkeys don't vote for Christmas, and so I'm obviously going to mention one of the companies I've invested in. But really, if I take a step back, I think it's anyone that's trying to disrupt the Microsoft Office space right now. I think for all of us, have lived much of our adult lives out in Microsoft Office, and it's done a lot of amazing things. But you know what? It's time for something new. And so uh, the company I love right now is, uh, there's, a, there's a number of them actually, but my, my most recent investment is in a company called Pitch.com, which is reinventing how presentations work end to end. And so uh, to me, that is one that is hopefully will be used by millions of people over the coming years and, and will be something that we look back on and feel very proud about investing in. And I'm sure very relevant to the, the audience of listeners here who we, who we try and reach with this podcast. Right, last question, fill in the blank. To be a founder, you must be X. Resilient. That's it. 
Resilience. Let's move to the um, the final section um, as we discuss more specifically how to add value as a as a VC. So, can you tell us or share with us your perspective on how VCs can best contribute to a portfolio company's board? What what are your lessons learned in terms of how best to do this? So, we join the board of companies um, at various stages, and one of the things that you've got to realize in joining a board, you've you've been let in by the founder to the inner sanctum of their mission, of the, of the company that they're trying to build. And so if you're there at the table, you need to be really adding some value. You can't just turn up once a quarter or once a month, um, tick the box that you've attended the board, you know, say a few words at the beginning, at the end of the meeting, and then leave without really adding value. Because um, ultimately, that is why the founder has invited you into that table. It's not just been because they they like the fact that you had some money um, or perhaps that the terms of the deal were great for them. It's because they actually wanted you to help them on that next leg. And it is a leg, right? This is like a, this is like a, a, a long distance race. It's like a, a relay race where you're handing the baton between different investors. And so when we join boards, it's typically there's a, there's a slight handing of the baton bef- between the previous investor and us perhaps as the new lead investor. And so you need to understand what has happened up till now what are the goals of this board going forward? Um, and it could be that, you know, one of the reasons you're on the board is to help the organization go through a period of change or for them to perhaps navigate through the next stage of their strategy. Um, and so through that, you're going to be wanting to be challenging challenging some perceptions. You may be wanting to bring in some alternative um, viewpoints. You may be saying to the team, hey, we're going to do some offline workshops with you to help you think through your go-to-market strategy or think through your, your technical growth strategy or how you're looking at moving into country A or country B or market A or market B with, your, with, your, with this new round of funding. And so being very hands-on and being very kind of integral into those decisions is, is something that um, you know, founders request us to do as being part of the board. Um, and so you know, we're in the business of helping when things go wrong. And so you, you, if you want to be a VC and only want to be around when things go right, then, you know, you're not going to be at these most, these most interesting conversations. So again, we, we have to create an environment where there's trust and there's openness so that the founders are willing to, to, to share with you the things that are concerning them or, or some early metrics or early numbers that make them pause for thought. And so you can debate them with, with the founder and the founding team. And, and maybe building on, on, on that point and kind of leading to the, the next question here is around, how do you maintain a channel of communication with a tech startup outside of those regular board meetings, um, you know, without being overbearing and, and being mindful of adding value? I mean, about 15, I'm dating myself here 15 years ago as a CEO of a later stage startup. And yes, we'd have our monthly board meetings, but there was also a lot of interface in between. And some investors added immense value. And I sometimes felt that other investors were a bit overbearing. It's like, let me get on and run the business. How do you get that balance right or be conscious of that when you're working with a tech startup? So we're we're fortunate now to have so many different mediums where you can have informal chat, right? So um, we use WhatsApp groups a lot, usually between board members as well as the founders for informal chit chat ideas, things that people are seeing, very casual same thing with Slack. Um, we tend to use email when things are on email, it's a lot more official. And so we, we tend to use the chat mediums a lot more for, for just 
keeping things connected and allowing there to be a free flow of information. Obviously, if things start becoming a little bit more overbearing and people are pinging you every day on WhatsApp to kind of ask you what the sales numbers were for last week, that would be because it'd be a WhatsApp group. Hopefully one of the other investors would step in and say, hey, 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 hold on, hold on. That's that's not for now. Let's let's give let's give the founder a chance. You know, let's let's talk about that at the next board meeting or let's wait for the the data deck to come up um, for the last quarter. And so, again, I think we we self-police here. I think we are by nature um, a group of, of of investors with with hopefully decent amounts of eq um and so we kind of help each other hold each other to account if we feel that you know we're stepping out of line and being a little bit bit too pushy i think enough of us have been around now where we're here to help the company and um you know those uh, those other methods of communication allow us to to kind of drop in and drop out and but then of course you've still got the hey do you want to meet up for lunch or another coffee and and certainly now as things are opening up a little bit that's becoming um, more prevalent. Just just last night, for example, I was able to go for dinner with one of my founders who I'd not seen in in you know, this this year. In fact, the last time I saw him was just before Christmas. I guess building on that point, and he touched on this a little bit earlier. You know, how did founder support change during the pandemic, and are some of those ways that they changed are they here to stay, or do you think now, as you've referred to your your dinner from last night, are things going to go revert back to the way they were pre-pandemic? How do you see that engagement evolving post-pandemic? Well, obviously, during the pandemic, everyone got very comfortable with doing everything remote. So I think what's going to be interesting is whether we go back to a world where we all meet up for board meetings. And actually, I think I think people are desperate to get back in the boardroom in a, in a strange way, the investors and the founders, to have a, a more meaningful conversation um, perhaps over a, 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 a less time-constrained um, kind of uh, situation. But I'd say, you know, the what really happened in those first few weeks and months is that everyone had to get very deep again with the portfolio companies that they were invested in because you had to unpack and unpick the issues and the concerns. And so I think for a lot of VCs and for a lot of investors, you know, we had to sharpen our pencils and get back very hands-on with a lot of the detail. And so obviously, as you come out of a crisis, you start withdrawing a little bit from the detail and you start thinking about, stop thinking about the micro and you start thinking about the macro again. But the the lessons of being back deep in the business again, especially if you've been invested for a couple of years, it's very easy for you to somewhat remove yourself from some of the day to day because you're just, you know, you're steering the ship rather than in the engine room. We all had to get back in the engine room. And I think that was a great reminder for everybody that you know being in the engine room is 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 where the action is and where you have the best understanding of of what's going on. So I think that's something that I'd I hopefully will live long in the memory of investors is is kind of that experience of being in the engine room and and hopefully that'd be good for the founders because we're still kind of very intimately aware of of their pressure points and and as they recover how how we want to see those those positive signals hopefully grow. Let's go into that engine room a little bit more deeply. You know, I think there's a lot of perceptions by founders that VCs are very good at um, helping them to connect to capital or helping them to connect to customers. But as you go deeper into that engine room, as you describe it, what other ways can you or do you try to add value? If you can give us a couple of examples of of what you've done that really goes deeper into adding value for the uh, for the startup. When we're working with with founding teams, you know they're clearly evolving all the time, Russ. And so, inevitably, you end up with situations where you have team restructuring conversations. The kind of the what got you here might not get you there kind of conversation, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And that is one that 
is actually a very heartfelt, emotional, difficult conversation for some founders, especially if it's the first time they're going through that kind of soul searching as to, is this the right team to get us to the next level? Especially when some people in that team may have been lifelong friends, may have been colleagues for, for maybe decades in some cases, and you are kind of having to look deep within your own soul to say, well, am I ready for this hard conversation? Is it in the best interest of my friendship or is it in the best interest of my firm? Can I balance both? What about my employees? And so these are very difficult conversations to be had. And myself personally and, and us as a fund, you know, we do have these conversations, you know, on a, on a fairly frequent basis, believe it or not. It's not unusual to have these conversations. But for every founder, it kind of feels like this is the first time perhaps they're being confronted with these inconvenient truths that they need to make some change. They need to show leadership above and beyond just getting more sales or getting more customers. These are profound changes that are going to straight um, restructure the team and, and set a new course for the next two or three years. And so, you know, if those of us who have been in operational roles previously, and, you know, as, as you said at the beginning, you know, that's something that I've been used to. I've, I've hired a lot of people in teams. I've had to let a lot of people go over my career in teams as well. You know, these are the kind of experiences and empathy that um, founders want to spend time talking through. And so, you know, that's that's really where we start adding some some deeper value just beyond, you know, a few intros and, and connecting people to some, some great customers of the future. Outside of restructuring teams, and another example I'd give is is kind of in the in the MA space where you're trying to consider build versus buy versus acquire. It's very easy sometimes for entrepreneurs, depending on their background, they continue to build, 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 when actually partnering may be the right answer, maybe acquiring another company that has that, that, that little bit of secret source that you need might be the right answer. And that, again, is a, a conversation that is measured not in hours and, and, and days, but that's measured in days and weeks of conversation, thinking, kind of research, you know, red teaming, um, before you come out with an answer that you think you want to share perhaps with the board or you want to share with the wider organization for for feedback as well. And again, sometimes those decisions are not popular. Sometimes those decisions may go against the grain. And so these, again, are, are some of the areas where investors need to and do step up at a board level, or we certainly step up as, a, as an investor to have with founders. And that's, as you say, that's not just about introductions to companies or introduction to search agencies to help with headcount hiring. A couple more questions for you. Um, on this point of adding value and, and this notion of, or initiatives around ESG, environment, society, and governance, to what extent are you encouraging founders in your portfolio to consider ESG criteria as they run and, and manage their businesses? From a regulatory perspective now, you know this is actually part of our investment process as a regulated investor here in Europe. So um, in many respects, this is not a choice anymore, right? This is who we have to be as a society, as a sector, as an industry. And actually, it's not, it's not difficult to get people thinking about this or engage in a conversation about this. All of the companies that we invest in, we, we talk to them about ESG and, and, and it comes in many different forms. And this is a, a multi-headed conversation, as you know. Um, and everyone is very much wanting to engage in the conversation. I think that it's about the journey. It's about how does a company, that, how does the company's values play into ESG? What are the big things that they need to do? What are the small things they can do? Under what timeframes do they need to do these things? That is kind of the, the broader conversation that we end up having. 
but I, I'm, I'm very happy to say, Russ, that this is not this is not questioned in the same way as diversity isn't questioned, ESG isn't questioned either. It's but it, it's it's more about how do you fit this in and where do you fit this in and how do you fit this. In. And then final question. Obviously, this this podcast is going to be shared in the run up to London Tech Week. Any thoughts about this year's London Tech Week, which kicks off on the 20th of September? And what kinds of things are you going to be looking for during London Tech Week? I'm going to be looking for humans, Russ. I've missed. Um, <laughs> Excellent. I've been missing. I've been missing humans um, for for quite some time. So you know, I think you know we're starting. You know, we're obviously recording this early, so we're starting to come out of our our kind of our, our um and we're getting out there now but um i l- would love to think that by time london tech week comes around we'd have had a bit of a break over the summer we'd have recharged our batteries to some extent um we will come back in september if, if september 21 is anything like september 20 everyone came roaring back in september 20 after the, the first series of lockdowns hopefully we'll be out of the woods um this time around and so i'd I'd be encouraging people to get super organized in the lead up for London Tech Week and, and make sure they're, they're taking advantage of hopefully what will be our, our newfound freedoms. So, well, listen, from one human being to another, thank you, Stephen, for your, your great insights and, and advice and perspectives. Um, and I know the listeners will have learned a lot from you in terms of what you've shared with us today. One last question. Um, where can people find you, Stephen? How could people reach out to you if they wanted to follow up with you? Um, you can, uh, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, we have our, our website, lakestar.com. You can find us there. So uh, happy to meet and, and greet folks um, throughout the usual course of business. Very good. Thank you. And and thank you to our listeners for, for being part of this Elevating Founders podcast. Um, if you'd like to hear more about news analysis and insights from our grassroots tech community, please check out our online magazine, GTA Connects, which is a, a new digital magazine from Global Tech Advocates, which we launched uh, in May of this year. So just visit gtaconnects.org to find out more. And again, as a reminder, London Tech Week is coming and you can register for all kinds of great events at londontechweek.com. And finally, if you have any questions or comments, um, head over to the Elevating Founders social channels that will be linked to the show notes to join us in this conversation or just email us at elevatingfounders at informa.com. Um, my thanks again to Stephen for sharing his thoughts and insights uh, with us today. And please join us um, for another episode of Elevating Founders. That's it for this week's episode of Elevating Founders. If you have any questions or comments, head over to our social channels linked in the show notes to join the conversation or email us at elevatingfounders@informa.com. If you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and subscribe to our podcast. See you next time.